and we are literally at the end of the end because we will be focusing on chapters 21 and 22, chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation as we've been doing the study. And uh, it's very interesting. The iPhone 6 was, um, was um, revealed <laughs> and everyone went crazy. And um, I think it was the first 24 hours, 4 million iPhones were ordered. That's crazy, man. Oh, man, 4 million iPhones in 24 hours. You look at the month, you know, you put that, what is it? Let's say it's 300, which some of them are more. But let's say 300 times 4 million. That's a lot of money. <laughs> wow. So now what's happening? Everyone ordered these new iPhones, and everyone is on the online. And what are they doing online? They put their little confirmation number, their, or, their track number, whatever. They go online to the order status page. They put copy-paste. I don't know why I know so much. <laughs> and then they hit refresh, refresh. Re and it's funny because some people are just sick. And we got to pray for some people. They hit refresh, and then five seconds later, they hit it again, like if it's just going to change, right? It's, it's not. And what are they doing? They're expectant. They're anticipating this new phone, which is the same as the one that we have now, but just a little bit bigger. And um, imagine if the church had that same expectancy for the kingdom of God, for eternity with Jesus Christ. Amen. Just checking into our lives, refresh, refreshes. Are you coming yet? Are you here yet? I mean, man, that, that's so awesome. And I, just, I, don't know, I was just thinking about that as I was looking at Revelation 21 today and getting ready to speak it with you guys. We discussed a lot last week, if you remember. And I don't want to go back to that because we'll stay on that. We talked about tabernacle and what that meant and how Jesus is the tabernacle of the New Testament, fulfilling the Old Testament tabernacle. And we did a whole introduction as we get ready to enter into the eternal kingdom. And now we find ourselves in chapter 21, verse 1, and um, we will use reference verses, but we'll also go verse by verse in Revelation. All right? John goes on and he writes now, and he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there were no more sea. Okay? So, so we look right here and we... See in chapter 21 of Revelation, he says, then, then I saw, or our translation says, now I saw. Another translation says, then I saw. Well, what did you see now? What are you seeing then? How come there's a change of your word from, from one passage to the next? How come you went from chapter 19 explaining this great white throne judgment that we discussed two weeks ago, and from this great white throne judgment in chapter 21, verse 1, then you went to, now I see this. Or then I see this thing coming up. And, and I like this because it's showing us a transition, something that has changed or shifted. And what John is doing to us now is he's basically saying um, only after, okay, only after. I saw this only after. And what he just finished seeing was the dead had now been judged. Satan, sin, and all the forces of evil had now been destroyed. And now God is making all things new. You, you, did you see that in this passage? He's making everything new. How do we know he's making everything new? The verse says what? I saw the new what? The new heaven, and I saw the new earth. So when John writes this, he says, everyone just got judged. Everyone just entered and, and went through the great white throne judgment. And Satan and sin and everything has been destroyed once and for all. And now there's a shift, and everything becomes new. The earth, there's a new one. A heaven, there's a new heaven. And it's, a, it's amazing because here's John writing at a different time, somewhere in AD 90. He's writing this. So you're looking at 90 years after everything that happened with Christ. And what you see now is he's writing very similar words to that of his buddy, in, I wouldn't say buddy in crime, but buddy in Christ named Peter. I'm going to give you a passage that Peter writes, and it's 2 Peter, if you're taking notes, chapter 3, verse 13. Notice the similarity with Peter's words and John's words. Peter says this, 
But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Uh, New King James says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want you to notice what John is saying. After the great white throne judgment, I saw new heavens and new earth. And what is Peter saying? What's coming? A new heaven. The New King James, um, for some reason, says heavens. In the NIV, it says heaven. Um, I have to go to the King James. I don't know. I don't have time right now to go to the King James. You have the New King James, though. Yeah. I'm not sure um, why the New King James decided to put heavens. Um, But you see he's using the same phrases as even John is using. I know the NIV does, I believe, use heaven and not heavens. It's pretty awesome. But notice what he calls it. He says, according to what? His promise. Who do you think he's talking about here? He's talking about God's promise. So God has promised all the believers that one day he will make all these things new. He will make all these things new. So with that phrase right there answering her question, I truly believe he is talking about the new heaven and the new earth because it's according to his promise. He's telling of something that was promised. So in this passage, this passage that Peter's talking about, Isaiah does the same thing in the Old Testament. He does the same thing. He talks about a new heaven. I create a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. That's Isaiah 65, 17. I'm just flipping through Scripture as we get ready to enter into more expository stuff. Isaiah says it again in chapter 66, verse 22. He says, as the new heavens and the new earth, I will make, I will, I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord. So will your name and descendants endure. So, so here's this new heavens, here's this new earth, and it's enduring. Okay? It is remaining forever. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth. First heaven, the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. And he goes on. I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Passed away. That Greek word for passed away there, it literally means it perished. It passed away. It's done. It's a word that Jesus uses. If you guys remember in Matthew 24, he says, heaven and earth shall what? Pass away, but my word shall what? Remain forever. Have you ever heard of that passage in Matthew 24? Jesus uses that same, that, that same word for passed away. It's that same Greek word, which means heaven and earth shall perish. Shall perish. Second Peter 3.10 even says the same thing. One translation says heavens will even disappear. The different, I don't know, different levels of heavens, whether it's the heaven the atmosphere and then the heavens of the of, of beyond our atmosphere what's out there in our universe and he describes it how these things will also disappear and pass away and then he says and there was no longer any sea so here's john and he's getting this vision he's getting a vision of a new heaven a new earth the earth that we now walk on, live on, work in, have families in, everything that we know, vacations that we've taken to visit different parts of the world, it's destroyed, it's gone, it's perished. Like, I want you to think of a world, I want you to think of a world that no longer exists. It's a new world that is coming. And this world that we know of no longer is here. It's continents, it's bodies of water. None of this is here. 70% of our planet, over 70%, is made up of water. What John just says, what? Not only did it all disappear, and not only did it all perish, but guess what? There's also no more water. When I saw this new heaven and new earth, think about it. It looks like a pale blue dot earth when you, t- when you, when you go to space because it's filled with water. But when John sees it now in the book of Revelation, he says, this is weird because we're used to seeing so much water on planet earth, and now there's no longer any kind of sea. 
No sea is found in it. Why would God want to do away with the sea? Just think about that. Well, what does the sea do? What does the sea do? In the name of Jeski, what does the sea do? What does it do? Produces weather. But one of the main things that it does is separate. What does it separate? Huh? It separates land. It separates people groups. It separates us from the other side of the world, even. And here's John. He says, I saw this new heaven, new earth, and there was no more sea. No longer was there any sea. See, the sea separates and divides continents and nations of this world as we know it. But when we look at this eternity that John is looking at, we see that it's different. There is no separation. Instead, everyone that is in, in eternity will live together, and we will see in Revelation now as we continue to go to these passages, they live together in unity and in perfect harmony, something that we've never seen as we've been living on this earth. What is one of the main questions that mankind has outside these doors? When will, the, when will there be peace on this earth? When will there finally be peace? We vote for presidents that have a great peace treaties. We, we vote for people that, well, how are you going to bring peace to this nation and to this country and to this land? It's something that this world has always been looking for. Peace, peace, peace. Well, there's no need for a sea because now everyone lives in harmony. Everyone is living together in unity. And the sea, this vision of unrest, right? When you think of the sea, unrest, if you've ever been out to the sea, if you look at Scripture, the Bible says that what are the unbelieving people are considered as? They're considered as what? The sea, who are being what? Tossed to and fro. That's what the wavering, unbelieving, those who lack faith look like, like the sea. So God's like, I don't need that negative picture in eternity anymore. There is no need for the sea. Isn't that amazing? When you break down word by word. So he says there's no sea, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth that's coming, and he doesn't really... He doesn't really explain the new heaven and the new earth for some reason. I wonder why God just didn't want to like, get into details. But we know there's a new heaven and a new earth. In a, in a minutes from now, you'll see how people from, from this new earth, whatever happens there, will bring uh, things to worship the Lord with in the new Jerusalem. So there's, there's some sort of nations and people groups within the new earth. But what John does spend a lot of time, and the angel shows him, is what is called the New Jerusalem. I want everyone to look at verse, look at verse uh, 2 with me. So right after he saw that there was no more sea, he says, Then I, John, I saw the holy city. I saw the New Jerusalem, and it was coming down out of the heaven from God. It was prepared as a bride who is adorned for her husband. So he sees this new heaven, he sees this new earth, but then he says, wait a minute, now I saw the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God coming down from heaven. The holy city comes down, and here it is, and he begins to see it. And now there is this new Jerusalem. It's not the old Jerusalem like we know today. It's not the earthly Jerusalem that we see that's in Israel today. But it's a heavenly Jerusalem that comes down. New Testament writers talk to us about this new Jerusalem that was going to come one day. As a matter of fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul writes to the church of that region. And you know what he tells them? This actually, this passage is pretty awesome. He says, now Hagar, oh, sorry, Galatians, chapter 4, verse 25, and verse 26. Chapter 4, verse 25, and 26. Watch what he says here. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Look at verse 26, guys. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. <laughs> Hagar, you got to go back to the times of Abraham. 
who is, uh, man, this is good. Because right now there's not a temple in the city of Jerusalem. There's a mosque. The mosque belongs to the Muslim people. The descendants, the Muslim people are actually descendants of a young man that we see in the Bible. And these Palestinians even that Israel's fighting with, right? These descendants of a young man. And they're in constant war with the Jewish people. And what we're seeing there is we're seeing two young men that are in constant battle, and they're brothers. Abraham's two sons. One's name was Isaac. The other son's name was Ishmael. Isaac was the son of promise who was born from his mother named Sarah. Ishmael was not the son of promise. He was a son according to the flesh that was born, that should have never been really born, from the maidservant of his wife Sarah by the name of Hagar. But something happened, ready? Hagar was a slave woman. She was a slave woman. She was a slave woman of Sarah. Sarah was actually a free woman. Hagar worked for her. Sarah worked for no one. Okay? Ishmael was the slave woman's son, child. Isaac was the free woman's child. Hagar, Sarah. Ishmael, in this verse, according to Paul, is called a slave. Coming from a mother who's a slave woman. Paul, speaking to the Jews and giving context to the Jewish people, talks about another city. Another city that awaits, and it's a Jerusalem that is above. But watch what he says. It's above and it is what? <laughs> it's free. We, it's free. Because, you see, we belong to a different woman. We are the people of promise, he's trying to tell them here. And our life is a little bit different than Ishmael. We're Isaac. We're God's chosen people. And we are children of freedom, not children of slavery. Ishmael today is running a very important part of Israel. Present Jerusalem. But when we get to the Jerusalem above, you're going to be amazed what 12 names are written on the 12 gates that are there. It's not Ishmael and his kids' names. Can I take a guess? It's Isaac's offspring and the 12 tribes of Israel. Their names are written in the New Jerusalem. Their names are written in the what? In the free, freedom, free Jerusalem. Not Ishmael's name. Man, that's good. If you guys could catch that, that's really good. The slave woman's son Ishmael today in present Jerusalem is a persecuting people. Am I wrong about that? The free woman, son Isaac, is a persecuted people. Am I right about that? Since the beginning of times, the Jews have been what? Persecuted. But what is Paul really, um, Paul really telling the people of Galatia? The ESV says, hey, listen, Hagar, her offspring... She, correspond, she corresponds with this present Jerusalem. But you guys, Isaacs, you guys, children of freedom, yours, Jerusalem, is that above. And she is our mother. That's awesome. That's good stuff, man. That is actually excellent stuff. Paul talks about the new Jerusalem. In Hebrews, no one knows really, and there's so many debates about who the author is, but the author of Hebrews says the same thing. Watch this. I'm going to go to verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 22, 23, and 24. The author of Hebrews says this. Chapter 12, 22, 23, and 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the holy city of the living God. Guys, Catch this revelation that the author is saying. It's like, it's not earthly, guys. It's actually what? It's a heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, verse 23, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in the heaven to God the judge of all, to the spirits just men of just men made perfect, 
to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What the author of Hebrews is saying is he's describing what makes up this heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus and the blood that covers it and the people that are in there and the angels that are found in there. And, and that's what he's doing. But don't get confused. Paul and the author of Hebrews and people from the New Testament writers and now John in Revelation, they all have something in common. And they're all speaking about a new kingdom that is coming. They're not really focusing on the present Jerusalem, but they're all looking and waiting for a Jerusalem that they're waiting for that will come from the heavens of God. That one day they will be able to live in there forever. And he says in chapter 21 of Revelation, well, what about this new Jerusalem? What is so beautiful about her? Well, we're going to know in the next three to, two to three weeks. Well, the new Jerusalem, as it came down, how was it prepared, guys? It was prepared as a what? As a bride. Really, I, I'm being honest. I've never really seen an ugly bride. Like, they're always dressed so beautiful. They always have some beautiful makeup on. They always have their hair so, so beautifully done. And when John sees this new Jerusalem comes, he can't describe its beauty. And the only way he's able to describe it, it's when it's coming down, it's like a bride when she comes down the aisle. It's beautiful. And she's prepared the new Jerusalem. She's prepared like a bride. And it goes on to say this, uh, she's prepared as a bride, but look what he says next, adorned, adorned for her what? For her husband. Well, it makes sense that the bride that is coming down, yes, she's going to take a lot of pictures and all that, but hopefully she's doing it with the mindset of, I'm walking down this aisle to see my beloved standing there. And that's what the wedding is all about. Well, when the new Jerusalem comes down, she's adorned, she's beautified like a bride who is preparing herself and beautifying herself. For the husband to see, check me out. It's awesome. It's awesome. Prepared. One, one, one translation says, she's prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Beautifully. Prepared. Prepared. That word prepared means in the Greek to make herself ready. I'm not going to get into that because we've gone so many weeks talking about be ready, even on Sundays. But she's beautifully dressed. Do you want to know what the Greek word for beautifully dressed or to be adorned, that word adorned, do you want to know what the Greek word means? It means it's cosmeo. Does that sound like anything? Doesn't it sound like cosmetics? It's where we get the word cosmetics. So this beautiful, adorned Jerusalem, she's adorned, cosmeo, where we get the word cosmetics, where we get the word adorn. She's clothed, she's filled with jewels, she's a beauty for your eye to look at. Wow, look at the cosmetics on that girl. Wow, look at the cosmetics on that city. That's what he uses, the word cosmetics. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 does the same thing. Look what Isaiah says. How can Isaiah know this? So many years before the New Testament. He's a prophet of God. In Isaiah 61 10, he says, I delight. I delight greatly in the Lord. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. And he says this. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with what? Jewels, cosmetics. He uses that word adorn as well. And when John stands there, he's explaining a beautiful picture that Isaiah was describing. So here is the new Jerusalem. Here it is in its beauty. And John is just like this. Ready? Wow. Look at verse 3 now. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice 
from heaven, and it said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their what? God. He hears a loud voice from the throne. It comes out from the throne. It likely it could be an angel. And he's making an announcement. And he says, behold, here it is, the tabernacle, he says. The tabernacle of God. It's now with men. What do you mean by tabernacle of God? We talked about this last week. The what? The dwelling. The dwelling of God is now with men. And not only is it with men, but now this tabernacle, this dwelling, now lives with the people. There's no longer separation. There's a dwelling. There's a tabernacle. And that's a beautiful thing. And look what happens within this dwelling, within this tabernacle. There's this promise in it. It says this, they will be his people and God himself. Everyone say God himself. Yeah. He himself will be with them and he will be their God. Like that's awesome. Like, I'm never going to be separated from my king again. He will be my God. God himself will dwell with me in person in the new Jerusalem. Like, I don't have to pray on my knees and say, Lord, I know you're somewhere there. Like, he's going to be, bam, in front of me. I don't know if we understand that. (laughs) I don't know if we get that. But John is seeing it. He's like, guys, he's there. Like, his presence is there. It's tangible you could touch it it's lighting up the room we're going to dwell with him in person and he with his people not by faith not by spirit but we'll be there in the fullness and in the glory god will be with us isn't that amazing oh i felt the spirit of the lord in this place you've heard us say that here huh not there Hey, I feel the Spirit of the Lord. They're always like, what are you talking about, Spirit of the Lord? I'm here. You feel me here? I like, like, physically, I'm here before my people because now I'm yours and you are mine. Man, I could just stop right there and just sing a song, right? But I, I won't do that. And that's what he's telling them. I think I told you, let's see, 1 John 3, 2, you could write that as a little subnote. Look what, the, look what John says here. Beloved, we are his children, the children of God, and it has not yet been real, revealed what been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as what? Yeah. Hey, you guys remember a couple weeks ago? Or was it last week when I said this is the God that we know? <laughs> remember that day? For you guys that were here? Yeah. When we see him, we're gonna what? We're going to see him for who he is. We're going to see him for who he is. Oh, man, I can't wait. And then he goes on and he begins to describe what happens now. It falls. It's beautiful. God's dwelling there. And then in verse 4, something beautiful happens. Everyone there? What does God do? Verse 4 says, and God begins to what? He begins to wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, for every former thing has passed away. How many of you could just say amen to that verse? Like, yo, I can't wait to stop crying. I cannot wait, look what it continues to say, to stop being filled with sorrow, to experience death. No more tears, no more pain. Everything that I know that brings hurt, that brings worry, is done with. It's passed away. He wipes away every tear from their eyes. He does away with it. There's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Every old order of things is done with and has passed away. Death, mourning, crying, pain, everything that we are familiar with. Have you been familiar with mourning, with death, with crying, with pain? I'm sure we have. Guess what? Everyone say this with me. No more. Wow. No more. No more. No more. The Bible tells us that yes, we will have to pass on this earth 
through many hardships, many sufferings to enter into the kingdom of God. Yes. You've ever heard someone say, well, if God is real, why does he make Christians go through that kind of stuff? Why did my family member die of, I don't know, cancer? Why did my die of, and we're like, it's part of, part of us, part of who we are. It's hardships. It's part of being on earth. Headaches, it's, it's tears, it's pain. It's part of it. But I love this. No more sufferings to enter the kingdom of God. I love how John hears those blessed words. No, no more. The last enemy, death, has finally been destroyed. It's finally been swallowed up in victory, like 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15 tells us. Mortality at last is clothed with immortality. We live forever. We are glorified. And nothing can ever touch us again. Wow. No more. So, John, what happens next? Oh, it keeps going. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne. Look at verse 5. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Thank God, because I just saw everything that was old past. I was wondering what was going to happen. <laughs> he says, I wasn't going to leave you hanging. I make all things new. And he said to me, write for these words, they are true and they are faithful. I love how God is true and his words are true because Satan is a lie. A lie he lies and he's the father of lies. Co totally, completely opposite of God. Isn't that true? And he says, see, his words are lies because he's the father of it. But me, write this stuff down because I'm faithful and faithful to keep my what? What do you think? Faithful to keep my what? My word. And what I speak to you is true. It's a beautiful statement by God. So he sees him seated on the throne. I am making everything new. It is definitely a beautiful uh, verse because he's made new heavens, he's made a new earth, he's made a new Jerusalem. And he's announcing that in his kingdom, listen to this now, everything in it will be fresh. Everything in it will be new. Have you ever met someone that says, I just want to move? Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever felt like that? I just want to get out of here. I just don't want to deal with these people anymore. I just wish I could disappear for a little while. Right? We've all said that. Or you all know someone that said that, right? God's like, no, here I make everything fresh and new. You don't have to go anywhere forever. Amen. My words are faithful, are trustworthy. They're true. So what does he say? Because I'm faithful and because my words are true, he says to do what, do what with them? He says, write every single word that I just spoke to you down. What is he basically saying? Don't keep this away from my people. But instead what? Reveal it. Show it to them, what's coming for them. Look at verse 6, guys. Uh, so far, are you guys being blessed by the passage? Verse 6 says, and he said to me, come on, man, what does he say? Done. It's like almost Jesus loves that word, right? That phrase. It is done. It is finished. It's very similar to Jesus' final words on the cross, right? It is finished. There's absolute, it's absolutely final, is what God seems to be saying here. My great work of redemption, my great work of salvation and restoration. At last is complete. The dead have been raised. The wicked have been judged. All of my enemies, even sin and death, have been destroyed. The heavens and the earth are renewed. And all of my saints have been rewarded. Say it with me. It is done. That's awesome. It's done. My eternal purpose from, from the beginning of this book to the end of this book, my eternal purpose has been what? Accomplished once and for all. It's done. It's finished. Paul tells us something in Ephesus about these times. He says, and he made known to us the mystery in Ephesians chapter 1, 9 and 10. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ 
to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. The fullness, the fulfillment of time. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, 9 and 10. And, and, and he's going ahead and he's speaking something very similar as John. Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. And for your side notes, if you want to go and study Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, you can as well. As Paul is saying very similar things to what John is saying. Ephesians 3, 9 through 11 as well. So after God says it is done, guys, look, what's, look what he says next. Ready? He says this. He says this. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. I love how he says I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Come on, guys. Maybe you don't know Greek, but what does that mean? It literally means I'm the what? I'm the beginning. I'm the end. Alpha is A. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He says, I'm A to Z. I'm everything in between. I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. There is no beginning of time. There is no end of time. I am above time. I am the definition of beginning. I am the definition of end. There is a forever in me. Eternity and me are forever. And it's repeated all throughout Revelation. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, God is basically saying, I'm it. I'm the Almighty. I'm the bread of life. I'm the... C, I'm the chief cornerstone. D, I'm the deliverer. E, I'm the Emmanuel. F, I'm the Father. G, I'm the great God. H, I'm the high priest. I, I'm the I am. J, I'm the Jesus. K, I'm the king of kings. L, I'm the Lord of lords. M, I'm the mediator. N, I'm the Nazarene. I mean, we could go down. O, I'm the omnipotent. P, I'm all powerful. We could go down the alphabet. And God is like, I'm every single letter. I am everything. A to Z and everything in between. I'm it. I'm it. What is Jesus really saying when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? What is he really saying? He says, only in me, only in me is everything what? Completed. Everything completed, that only happens in Jesus. In the one who completes all things. What does the Bible say about our faith? For he is the what? The author and the finisher of our what? You know what that means, the author and the finisher? The beginner the one who writes it, starts it, and the one who what? Ends it. What does that mean? He completes our lives. He says what? When you will be born, and he says what? When you will live your last day. I'm the author, and I'm the finisher. And what does he say after he reveals that in him he completes everything? He says something next. He says what? Him who's thirsty what? What does he say? I will give of the fountain of what? Water of life freely to whoever thirsts. To him who is thirsty, I give. I'm going to give them a drink. I'm going to give them a drink from this spring, from this fountain of water of life. And guess what? It's free. It's without cost, he's saying here. It, there's a thirst. There's a longing. Notice this here. It's a reference of something that is spiritual. It is not physical. It's a spiritual longing. It's a spiritual thirst that people have, not physical. It's a deep yearning for God and his life. It's like the soul that is panting for God the way that a what? A deer pants for what? What does the psalmist say? Water. So my question to us that call ourselves the church, are you thirsty for God? Not hungry, not, not physically, sorry, but, but it's a spiritual thirst. It's a, it's a longing, it's a soul that is panting for the kingdom of God to arrive once and for all. Huh? How are we doing? Are we panting for that? And he goes on and he says this, He who overcomes, verse 7, shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He's repeating it again. He shall be my son. He who overcomes inherits. Look, look again there at that verse, guys. He says, he who overcomes shall inherit. But what does it say after shall inherit? 
All what? All things. One translation says this, He who overcomes will inherit all this. <laughs> all this. He, he, he's, hey John, come here. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. All things, all of this. Overcomes. That Greek word means to subdue, to conquer. I like this one, ready? To prevail. To finally, to have the final victory. The follower of Christ. We have many enemies to overcome. How many of you will say, yeah? Many enemies to overcome. Think about that. Sin, Satan, temptation, flesh, the world. We have many enemies, trials, difficulties. I mean, we could keep going down the list. We have many enemies to overcome. He who overcomes inherits all of this. Inherits all of this stuff. The saints who overcome the devil. Finally, here God is saying that this overcomer inherits all of this stuff. This is the one who has persevered and who has prevailed and who will be now richly rewarded. Listen, you know what happens in the end times? Many who are walking in the faith will what? Will depart from the faith. But God says what? I'm blessing, I'm rewarding the one who persevered, who remained, who continued to raise the banner high when no one else was lifting it. Jesus Christ is Lord. To that person, Jesus says what? I give them what? All of this. It's their inheritance. It's like a father who loves a child and says, son, my whole kingdom is what? Yours. But dad, you're not going to hold anything back? He says what? No, not nothing. Not, not one thing, not anything will I hold back from you. Why, dad? Why not, dad? Because you overcame because you persevered, because you did not stray, and everything is yours. All of this is yours. Everything, everything that John had just seen and described here in Revelation 21, listen to this. The new heaven and everything that's inside of it, the new earth and everything that's inside of it, the new Jerusalem and everything that's inside of it, even the new, no more pain, the no more tears, no more death, drinking of the water that lives that of life freely, even of God dwelling with us forever, us with Him forever, all of that. He says, all of this is what? Yours. Can you imagine walking into the eternal kingdom one day and saying what? All of this is mine. You can't say that. Yes, I can. Revelation 21 says, all of this is mine. Everything here is mine. Well, what makes you think all of this is yours? In Jesus Christ, he's given it to me as an inheritance because I persevered. I overcame. I subdued my enemies. I never gave in. I raised the banner high. All of this is mine. I have victory in Jesus. And that's good. All of this is yours. And I will be their God. And they will be my children, my sons. He will be a son to me, is what he's saying. How special are we going to be to God in the New Jerusalem? Think about that. How special? If you're a parent, you know this verse well. You want nothing but what? The best for your child. The best. Child bumps himself, your child gets hurt, your child cries, you feel their pain, you feel their hurt, you feel their... You lose sleep because of your children, don't you? Think about the love. Think about the blessing that we have in eternity. That God says, all of you become my what? My sons and daughters. You don't even know, God is saying, how special you really are to me. Wow. Guys, let's keep going. I want to finish at least this section here. How many of you are excited for this day? How many of you are, are longing and panting for God like a deer pants for water? But do you know that not, not everyone makes it? Look at the next verse. Who's the one that makes it? He who what? He who, what's the word I used? Endures, overcomes. He who overcomes inherits all this. But watch the next, the next verse. Not so good. But. Oh, there's always a but. 
There's always a clause, right? Oh, it got me. I thought everything was mine. You think, but. I'm not done. But. But the cowards, cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and I like this, ready? And what liars? All liars. Not even one liar, all liars. He's very, he's very big into emphasizing liars, all liars. I wonder why. Because he, oh, because <laughs> he is the what? The truth. And Satan is, the, like I just said earlier, the father of lies. So all lies, all liars cannot come here. Not one of them. And he says this. They shall all have their part in the lake which burns with fire. So that's called the lake of fire. And how does that lake of fire feel? It burns. And it burns with fire. And it burns with brimstone. And that is the what? Real quick, why is it the second death? Well, what, is the first, for, what does the first death separate you from? From what? From life. From life. From our families, from earth, from here. It separates us, the first death. What does the second death do? It separates us from what? From eternity with God. From life. And we go and die forever. You see that? The believer doesn't experience this. The cowardly, the liars, the mur murderers, the abominable, the unbelieving. The cowardly, very, uh, very strong word, right? Coward. Wow. Why would you call someone cowardly? He states everyone who's going to inherit all the glories and the lights of the kingdom. But now he proceeds with this long list. Explicitly what? Defining those who are not going to make it. And he begins to describe one as cowardly. And I look at that and I say, these are the ones who are not valiant for God. They were not true to his truth. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. The cowardly are the ones who feared man and feared man's opinions more than God's. You guys with me? There are churches now more than ever that fear man. And they're changing their laws and their biblical teachings to not offend and to accept all kinds of people. And God says, no. You don't live for the opinions of man. You live for the thoughts of God. The cowardly please everyone. The bold, the righteous live to please God. Amen? And that's who I believe the cowardly are. He explains that. Well, so if you feel like you're a coward today, don't get offended, but if you do feel that, because I've felt many times in my life that I'm a coward, what is the best cure, medicine, to heal from that cowardly spirit? And that is to fear God. Matthew 10.28 says something very powerful. Jesus says something in Matthew 10.28. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, you be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Who does not only just kill your body, but can also send your soul to hell. What is he saying? Don't fear man who can just affect you physically, but fear the God that doesn't just have a touch on you physically, but can also destroy you what? Spiritually, your soul. I love Matthew eleven twelve. 12. If you're writing notes, just write that as a, as a reference. In Matthew eleven twelve, 12, it doesn't talk about cowardly people. Instead, it says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, but the violent take it by force. The cowardly do not take it by force. Don't talk about Jesus like that. I put a post on Facebook. Go ahead and watch it. Mr. Phil Robertson from Doug Dynasty. When I put that post up, I wanted the church, the body, the people to say, that's not a coward. 
He stood on the Hannity Show, on live TV of millions of viewers and hearers on the radio. And he boldly proclaimed what the gospel says is true. And he didn't care if he was going to offend anyone. You should go listen to it when you get home. Not now, but when you get home. And that's the people that make it. It's not the cowardly, but those who what? Fight for the kingdom of God, who take it back by what? Force. He says the unbelieving, those who have no faith, who are hopelessly lost. The scripture makes it clear that what? Without faith, it is impossible to what? Hebrews eleven six 6, to please God. The good news of Jesus, his salvation, only happens with a believing heart. The unbeliever will perish forever. And then it says the abominable. Another translation for that is the vile individual. Vile means, you want to know what that word abominable means in the Greek? The stanky person. The stinky one. The one who smells. The abominable, abominable, abominable person. That person will not make it either. They are detestable to me. These people are guilty of sins. So filthy, so stinky, that there's a stench to them in God's nostrils. And Paul was referring to this people in this group. If you study when you get a chance, go to Romans chapter 1, especially verses 24 through 29 when you get home. Paul begins to describe a people that smell to God's nose and have no place in heaven. And he begins to describe this kind of individual that lives in perversion and homosexuality and all these weird sins. And he says, it's a stench to God's nose. And then he goes on, he says, the murderers. The murderers are those who take the life of another human being. Those who kill, those who commit homicide, and they do it on purpose. They do not make it. He talks about the sexually immoral. This is actually a very broad group of individuals. It could include many people. Many individuals that maybe even fill churches. The sexually immoral will not make it. Think about how many prostitutes even that they're out there. How many fornicators. How many idolaters are out there. Those are sexually immoral people that Jesus says will not make it into the eternal kingdom. And then he says sorcerers. Those who practice magic arts and witchcraft and forms of magic, sorcery. They will not make it. They will not make it either. I like the Greek word for for this sorcery word, it's pharmakios, where we get the word pharmacy, pharmacist. So you're looking at someone who's like a pharmacist, a druggist, and someone who gives potions and spells and uses drugs to receive some sort of high. They will not make it into the kingdom of God. Idolaters is anyone who does not just worship a certain Stone idol and idolaters, anyone who worships any other image, any image, any image other than God, any created thing rather than their creator. Idolatry, what is that definition of idolatry? It is literally putting anything above God is idolatry. Did you know that? It's not just an idol that you make. It's something, someone, it, them, her, him before God. And then he says, all liars And he places a special emphasis on that. All liars. All hypocrites. Everyone. Lying is so specific to the Lord because the devil, father of lies, Jesus being truth. And he says, no liars make it. And then he says, there are a place will be in a lake which burns. It's a fiery lake. One translation says of burning sulfur. And that is the second death. It is the eternal separation from God forever. If we die today, I just shared with you, it separates us from life. But those who die in the second death, it separates them from eternal life forever. Forever. The second death refers to the everlasting separation from God in the lake of fire and destiny 
the end result, the destiny for all of these that are listed in this verse that I just read, cowardly, unbelieving, vile, abominable, whatever you want to call them, everyone, is everlasting torment in the lake of fire, the second death. That's their portion. That's their share. That's their allotment. That's what belongs to them, the lake of fire. Amen? Those are just the first eight verses. Next week we'll go to the next eight. I feel like every time we do this, we do this. We always say this. But look at verse 9. If you have the New King James or maybe another translation, does you guys, do you have a certain topic, um, heading or bold, uh, a bold topic above verse 9? What does it say? The New Jerusalem? Maybe yours doesn't. It's okay. Does anyone else say anything different than the New Jerusalem? We are all of ours in the New Jerusalem. It's cool because verses 9 all the way down to verse 21 speaks about the details of the New Jerusalem. Hey, I'll tell you what, just so we could tease each other for a little while. Let's read it, and we'll pray and end. But we'll talk about it in detail like we did today, the first eight verses, about the New Jerusalem next week. Ready? Verse 9, this is what we're going to cover next week. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, and he said, Come. I'm going to show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out from heaven, heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, like clear as crystal. She had great and high wall, high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates, and the names were written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three on the south, and three gates on the west. Verse 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. That's crazy. 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, to measure its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are all equal. You're looking at about 1,300 miles. 1,300 miles this way, 1,300 miles that way, 1,300 miles this way. 1,300 miles, a little bit more equally. And then it says, and 44 cubits, according to the measure of a man, and that is of an angel. Pretty cool. So he begins to describe even the size of an angel there. And the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, and here's what I struggle now. The third Help me? Yeah, I don't have those stones, so I don't know it. Chas, right? If you're reading online, just read it. The, the fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. Tenth, chrysophrase. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, oh, sorry, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. You guys ever seen those? You guys have seen those before? Oh, you women. Sorry, us men, right? I was like, whatever. Let's put a diamond on my ring and I'll wear it, right? All right, whatever. Where am I? And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. And we'll talk about all this imagery. Verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God was a lamp, was illuminated it. The lamp is its light. The nations of those who, saved, who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall also be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of all the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes 
and an abomination. What's another word for that? A what? A stench. Or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of what? Life. Next week, we're going to get into all this stuff. Why those stones? Why that gold? Why that glass? Why those walls? You know, just one of the walls, when you begin to measure it, the walls of the New Jerusalem, check this out. It's indestructible. No one can penetrate it. Have you ever seen a wall that is 400 or 200 to 400 feet thick? Oh, the New Jerusalem's walls are. It's crazy. Can't penetrate that. Secure, it's safe. Nothing will ever harm those who dwell in the New Jerusalem. Amen? Let's pray.